My name is John Whitaker, if we have not met before, and I am uh, glad to be with you today. We are continuing through 1 Peter, and we will be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 10 today, and we'll, you, you can open your Bible to that, open your phone. We'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, but just to get us started, almost 30 years ago, I remember when um, I became a professor at Boise Bible College. I was 26 years old. Uh, I was given an office. There was a desk and an office chair. There was even a file cabinet in there. There was a, a college, you know, issued computer sitting on the desk. Uh, and there was a nameplate on the door that said, Mr. Whitaker. There I am. Uh, I am a college professor. Um, now, <clears throat> Being a college professor, you know, in a certain sense feels like, man, you know, all those years of going to school have paid off. In a certain sense, you feel like you've arrived, right? College professor, man, you know, nine years, eight years of college, whatever it was. And here's the thing. <clears throat> when you become a college professor, there are things you have to do. Like all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, I got five classes I have to prepare for? There's lectures I have to write? I, you mean I got to show up early in the morning because I got to go to class and teach those students? Wait, there's faculty meetings? Really, faculty meetings? I mean, who likes meetings? Faculty meetings every week? You mean I got to be on a faculty committee? Really? Oh, I got to do academic advising? Really? I don't want to mess around with helping students figure out their schedule. Let's just figure it out themselves, right? What? I got to grade papers? Like, if I give homework, I actually have to do something with it? I have to grade it? Tom, right? Like, grading papers? Who wants to do that? And the fact is, is, if, if, you know, like, just think about it. If I decided, you know what, I only want to do what I feel like doing. I want to sit in my office, at my desk, read my books, and, you know, just enjoy the, the status that I now have, college professor. I don't want to do any of that other stuff. How would that go for me? It wouldn't go so well. The nameplate would be off the door pretty quickly, wouldn't it? No more Mr. Whitaker. Every parent kind of knows this in a different regard. Like, right? Mom, can I, can, please, can we get a puppy? Please, can we get a puppy? What's the problem with getting a puppy? Well, you got to take care of the puppy. The puppy's got to learn not to pee in the house. The puppy's got to be fed. When the puppy poops, what do you got to do? Right? Like, there are certain responsibilities that come with having a puppy, right? Here's the fact. This is very simple truth. Fact of life. A given status brings with it specific responsibilities. True? Whatever the status is. College professor, I've got certain responsibilities. Whether I feel like going to faculty meetings or not, got to go. Whether I want to grade those 10-page papers or not, they got to be graded. There's just certain responsibilities. Getting a puppy, congratulations, you now have the status of a pet owner. And there are specific responsibilities that come with that. Cleaning up after the dog and everything else, right? It's the way it goes. You make the sports team. And, you know, you can puff out your chest and be all proud that you made the sports team, but guess what? You got to train. You got to show up at practice. You got to listen to your coach. You're going to have to eat right. Specific responsibilities. 
You can't show up, you know, at the beginning of training camp, overweight, out of shape, not knowing the playbook. This is not going to work for you, right? A given status carries with it specific responsibilities. You get married. You're a wife. You're a husband. Guess what? There's some responsibilities that are going to take some effort and some work. There's some adjustments that are going to have to be made just the way it goes. True? This is just the way it is in life. It's a fact of life that a given status carries with it specific responsibilities. And that fact is at the heart of what Peter wants to teach us and tell us today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and following. All right? So you need to keep that in mind as we walk down through this text. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to read through the text and make a few comments as we go, just to give us the, the whole picture. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to make some general observations and draw out some implications for you and I. All right? So we'll read through the whole thing, and then we're going to come back and pull out some observations and implications. So let's begin. 1 Peter chapter 1. Picking up in verse 10, Peter writes this to us. He says, now as to this salvation, because Peter has just described in the preceding couple of verses how God has given us this incredible salvation and how it's on layaway for us, reserved for us in heaven. So as to this salvation, Peter says, the prophets, meaning the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come later, that would come to us, they made careful searches and inquiries. Peter is telling us that these Old Testament prophets, as, they, as God gave them their messages, were trying to figure out, wait a second, what's going on? What is this about? What does this refer to? And so he says they made careful searches and inquiries into this, uh, seeking to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as, the predicted, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they're trying to figure out, wait a second, you're telling us some pretty incredible things, some pretty remarkable things. When is that going to happen? Who does that refer to? What exactly is that about? The Old Testament prophets are trying to figure that out. And he says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you all. In these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In Peter's original context, he means those who, who started the churches that he's writing to. Uh, in our context, it would be those who shared the gospel with you. And those Old Testament prophets, God made it clear to them that their words were not for their day and age. Not for their time period, but for a future time period. For us who have heard of the Messiah and of Jesus. And then he says this, that it was, it was uh, revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but us. Uh, and then he describes the very last phrase of verse 12, these things which angels long to look. The point of those first couple verses there is this, that you have been given an incredibly great salvation, so great that the prophets long to try to figure out what it was about, and angels long to look into it and just say, wow, that is incredible. That is amazing. And then Peter goes on and says, therefore, based on this, based on this great salvation, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, he's going to bring 
overwhelming and abundant grace to those who know him and are in him. So set your hope completely on that. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. The way you used to live and those lusts that used to drive you in your former life before you met Christ. Um, as obedient children, don't be conformed to those lusts. But, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each person's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, which really isn't your stay on earth. It means the time of your sojourn, the time of your pilgrimage. Like, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We'll be on earth forever, right? It'll just be a brand new earth. But right now, the earth is broken and fallen, doesn't work right. So during this time where we live as misfits, conduct yourself with fear. Why should you do that? Well, look at verse 18. Knowing that you were redeemed, with per not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. God knew all along that he was going to have to send Jesus, but he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, that's the whole text we want to look at this morning. And what I want you to just notice right out of the, the get-go is how the text begins and how the text ends. The first few verses, that stuff about the prophets and angels long to look, that's about how great this salvation that we have been given is, right? It's so great that the prophets that first talked about, we're trying to figure out what is this about? What are we, what are we, what are we talking about here? And it was made clear that it wasn't about their time period, your time period. It's so great that angels long to look into it. This salvation is incredibly great. That's the first little bit. And then notice how it ends, those final verses in verses 18 through 21, how it's about the redemption that we have in Jesus. And how great is that redemption that we have in Jesus? Well, you weren't redeemed with just, you know, dollar bills and money, right? You were redeemed with the precious blood of the Messiah. That's how great our redemption is. That's how great our salvation is. And so this, this passage begins and it ends with verses about our salvation and our redemption. We have been given this incredibly uh, beautiful, precious, great salvation. And then what Peter does is in the middle, he says, so in view of that, live a certain way. Since you've been saved, there is an appropriate way to live. What is that appropriate way to live? And what Peter does in the middle of this passage is he gives three specific verbs that call us to action. Three calls to action that describe how we should live since we're now saved. This is what he says. The first one, look at, uh, is in verse 13 where he says, fix your minds, fix, or fix your hope. And, and, and preparing your minds for actions, being sober, fix your hope. The first thing that Peter talks about here, the first call to action is our hope. What do we hope in? What is our hope placed in? 
And the reality is, human beings are hope-seeking creatures. In fact, even secular psychologists for decades have pointed out that without hope, humans can't survive. When they lose hope, they give up, they quit, life over. That we are hope-seeking beings. That's part of what it means to be human. But the fact is, what we hope in radically shapes how we live. That's just true. What you or what I hope in is going to alter where we invest our time, where we invest our energy, and how we live. So if, say, we hope in, um, if our hope for a good life is based on, say, our appearance, right? If it's based on our appearance, then we're going to work really hard to maintain our appearance. We're going to pay really close attention to our clothes, to our hair, to our physical features. We may pay extra money for certain surgeries when our appearance starts to go south, right? Like, it's just going to happen. Um, all of a sudden, then, when our appearance does start to go south, for whatever reason, and things start to, you know, wrinkle up or sag or, you know, uh, balloon out or whatever happens to our appearance... What's going to happen is, if our hope is in that, is a certain level of disappointment and demoralization, right? Or what if it's your physical capability? What if you were, uh, in your younger years, you're, you know, you're an incredible athlete. You got all sorts of physical abilities. And you fix your hope on that. And, and then all of a sudden, that's taken away. What happens, right? Like what we hope in radically affects how we live, where we invest our time, where we invest our energy, what brings us disappointment, what brings us joy. All of that is directly connected to what we hope in to bring us a good life. Notice what Peter says in verse 13. When he says, fix your hope, he says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober in spirit, set your hope completely on what? On the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like, at, there's lots of good things in life, lots of pleasurable things, lots of enjoyable things, lots of things that in and of themselves aren't bad, but what Peter is telling us is they can't be what your hope is fixed on. They can't be what your hope is set on. Why? Because they're temporary. They're passing. They don't last. Here he calls us to fix our hope completely on Jesus and his return. Like Jesus will return again and our hope has to be fixed. Not partially, not mostly, but what does he say? Completely. Fully, like all your eggs in the basket of Jesus and his grace and his return. All your eggs are in that basket. And if Jesus doesn't come through, then, then we're screwed. Right? That's what he's saying. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So, so as those who have been given this incredibly great salvation, as those who've experienced everything angels long to look into and the prophets were seeking to figure out, as those who were bought with the blood of a lamb, then one of your responsibilities is fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus. And the fact is, is there's a lot of things that we don't totally know 
totally get or totally understand about the world to come, right? When, when the new heavens and the new earth come, when God makes all things new and we enter into our eternal states, there's a lot of things that, that we don't fully get. There's a lot of things that even if God told us, we probably couldn't fully understand because it's beyond our comprehension. But here's something we can't understand. Being reunited with somebody we love. Can't we? And I think that's why Peter says it the way he does. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the curtains are pulled back and all of a sudden we get to see Jesus face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And it's like, yes, that's what I've been waiting for. That's what I've been longing for. I've wanted to be with you. I've wanted to see you. I've known you from a distance, but now I get to know you face to face. That's where our hope must be fixed because everything else will disappoint. Everything else will fade away. And that hope is not mere wishful thinking. It's not just like, well, sure hope it turns out right. As Ulrich pointed out last week, this is a living hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. It's a living hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead. I was sitting in a fishing boat with my grandpa a number of years ago, and he, he, he kind of believed in God, but he really struggled with everything the Bible taught. And at one point in the conversation, my grandpa said to me, he said, John, I just don't think there's any way that we could ever know what happens after death. To which I said, uh, Grandpa, I would completely agree with you. Unless... There was someone who's been there and come back again to tell us all about it. And that's who Jesus is. And that's what I believe. We fix our hope firmly on the return of Jesus. And we know when he comes, he'll bring incredible, abundant grace to us. And so we long for that. That's what we count on. All our eggs for everything we hope for, all the right wrongs to be righted, everything to be set right, right? All our longings for, a good, longings for a good life, all our longings for joy fixed on Jesus and the grace he's going to bring when he comes again. That's the first call to action. Second thing Peter says to us is, um, because you've been saved like this, because you have this great salvation, what he says to us is, be holy. Be holy. Now, Holiness is one of those kind of religious words, those church words. I'm guessing most of the time throughout the week, you don't use the word holy. So what in the world does the word holy actually mean? Well, the basic meaning of the biblical word holy is to be different or to be set apart, to be other than something, right? You're set apart from something. And in this regard, what Peter means by it is that that Christians, followers of Jesus, we are holy in the sense that we're set apart for what our life is for, and we're set apart in how we live our life, for what our life is for and how we live our life. You read through the Old Testament. Uh, You're reading, say, the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, uh, you come to instructions for the tabernacle. Or in other places, you come to descriptions of the temple. And all of a sudden, you have maybe a description of uh, an incense pan that's going to be used in the temple. And it says, this incense pan is holy. And you're like, what? How can a pan be holy? Or it talks about tongs. And I'll say, this, these, these tongs are holy. How can tongs be holy? Well, they're holy in what they are for. 
They are set apart to be used in the worship of Yahweh for God's purposes. That's part of being holy. Your life, my life, our life, if we're followers of Jesus, our life is for Jesus. It's for his honor. It's for his glory. Part of what it means to be holy is to be set apart in what your life is for. We don't get to live for ourselves. We don't get to live for our own preferences. We don't get to live for our own goals, our own aims, our own ambitions. Our life exists for Jesus and his honor and his purposes and his worship and his glory. Your life is holy because of what it's for. And your life is holy because of how you live it. When it says be holy, what Peter is talking about is how we live it. Since our life is for him, we have to live differently. And that's at its root what it means to be holy. We're different. We're different than the way we used to live. We're different than the world around us. Individually, we're different. Corporately, we're different. Like, like churches should treat their employees differently than the way the world treats them. Why? Because we're holy. Right? Christian uh, bosses who own companies should treat their employees differently. Why? Because they're holy. Like, notice Peter, look, look what it says when he talks about being holy, verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, and look at this next phrase, in, what does he say? In all your behavior. Or you could, that word behavior is actually a really important word for First Peter. You could translate it, conduct, your manner of life, your whole manner of life, not just individual actions, um, not just religious behavior, not just showing up to church like, you know, this is fine and all, what we're doing here this morning, but this isn't where most of your life happens. Most of your life happens, you know, not here, in this room or in this building. Be holy in all your behavior, in all your relationships, with your neighbors and with your coworkers and with your spouse and with your kids, right? Be holy in all your behavior, like your whole manner of life, not just your religious life, not just your spiritual life, your whole life must be holy, must be different from the values and the ambitions and the aims that used to maybe characterize you and that characterizes the, the world around us that doesn't know God. We're supposed to be different, holy, be holy in everything we do, our whole manner of life. And look what he says in verse 16. He says, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter grounds this in the character of God with a quote from the book of Leviticus. And this is really at the heart of the book of Leviticus is holiness for the, for the Israelites. What's going to make them distinct and different from the culture around them? Well, their manner of life, their whole way of life is going to be different, unique. It's going to be holy. And so he says, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Our holiness is based on the character of God. So when we say we're going to be different, it means we're going to become like God. And here's the thing. You, as a human being, are made in whose image? You're made in God's image, which means you're made to function the way God functions, which means as you become holy, what's happening? You're becoming more who you were created to be. Like Holiness is not opposed to your humanness. 
Holiness isn't forcing you to be something different than, you know, you were created to be. Holiness is actually helping you embody and live out who you were created to be. In fact, you could say it like this. You could say the more holy we are, the more human we are. The more holy you are, the more human you are. Um, and so as you begin to live out the holiness of God in your own life, you're actually beginning to fulfill your very human design, your very human nature. Because the more holy you are, the more human you are. In fact, unholiness is inhumanness. Uh, Unholy people are more animal-like and less human-like. Holiness is more human because you're created to image the very character of God. So Peter calls us, based on the salvation we've been given, to be holy. And then the third call to action is this. He says, conduct yourself in fear. Conduct yourself in fear. Um, the way he puts it, verse 17, is like this. He says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each person's work. And when he says it like that, he puts an if at the beginning, but it's an if that means, and you do. If you address as father, and you do. You do. Um, the one who judges according to each person's work impartially, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your pilgrimage during the time of your sojourn in this fallen world. Um, I've been chewing on that particular phrase out of this passage more than the other, uh, other two all week. Conduct yourself in fear. And you know what that reminds us? That there is, that being saved is serious business. Being saved is serious business. It's not something, you know, just kind of fun, something to be entered into casually, right? It's not just something that's kind of nice and, oh, yeah, I got my ticket to heaven and someday I'll go there, but in the meantime, I'm going to do whatever I want. Being saved is serious business. And in our culture, it's so easy for us to fixate on trivial things, isn't it? Um, let me put a quote up on the screen. This is actually from a, a book, a 40-year-old book, that, that was saying it then, I think it's even more true now. Um, the book is entitled Trivializing America. It's easier to think loosely about unimportant matters. People tend to think about football, the news, the weather, their budgets, before they think about the important things of life. It's true. That was 1983, 40 years ago. How much more distracted are we now? How many more trivial things do we have at our disposal all the time now? How much more occupied can our mind be with the unimportant things rather than the, the truly important things? And again, it's not like all those things are bad. Football can be enjoyed, right? It's not a bad thing. Uh, if you stayed up late watching the Colorado-Colorado State game last night and you're tired in church, right? Like, happens, right? Football can be, can be good. Those things aren't in and of themselves bad, but they aren't the most important things, are they? And we can get so fixated on the trivial that we forget the genuinely important. 
And Peter, when he says, conduct yourself with fear, he's reminding us, life is serious. Following Jesus is serious. And we need to have a holy fear about how we approach our discipleship to Jesus. Particularly in a world where, if we remember the, the original context of the, the setting for First Peter, these people, they're suffering hostility, marginalization, rejection, right? They're losing jobs. Uh, spouses are leaving them. They're having all sorts of difficulty because of their faith in Jesus. And it's really hard to follow Jesus. And it's really hard to be, to be faithful because of that. And Peter is like, that's all right. Just make sure you fear the right person. And you fear the right things. Don't fear the government, right? Don't fear your neighbors who oppose you. Don't fear the trade guild who just kicked you out. Don't fear all those things. Have a holy fear of God. And remember uh, that being saved is a serious thing. That, that your choices have eternal consequences. Our choices have eternal consequences. The ramifications are huge. Another kind of classic old quote that I think really helps us begin to think about the seriousness of what we're involved in. It's not just going to church. It's not just singing songs and feeling good that we've been to church and having sort of a, you know, kind of a positive buzz from our church experience. No, it's far deeper and far more serious than that. This classic quote from Gordon Dahl says this, we worship our work. We work at our play and we play at our worship. That was his critique of America, and particularly American Christians. We worship our work. We work, 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 work. we got to make a dollar. we got to get ahead because we put all our hope in that. We're going to have an early retirement and all, whatever else it is. Right? We're going to be able to live the good life because we have a big savings account. We work, work, work. We work, and we worship our work. We work at our play. You know, people go on vacation, and they're so tired when they come back from vacation. They have to have a vacation from their vacation, Right? They've worn themselves out, and then we play at our worship. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. We don't play at worship. We stand before the infinite, almighty, all-holy God. And that's a serious thing. So conduct yourself in fear. Your choices every day have eternal consequences. And our life, Peter says, will be assessed. It will be assessed. God does judge impartially, and there are consequences to our choices. So now, why would we do that? And look what Peter says at the end of this text. He says, why, what motivates us? Well, because you know that you weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. You weren't with, redeemed with perishable things. You were redeemed. You were liberated from sin and death and hell and the devil. You were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Like when we gaze upon Jesus and realize what it costs, what our salvation costs, all of a sudden it's like, yes, I want to honor him. I want to please him. I want to serve him. Why? Because he laid down his life for me. And so we're driven, not by the fact that we're trying to gain salvation. We're driven by the fact that we've been given salvation as a gift at the cost of Jesus' life. And we want to honor him in that. And so to tie all this together, Peter's, Peter's really telling us this, that salvation, salvation is great, it's incredible, but salvation isn't merely a gift that we enjoy. 
It's a responsibility to be lived. Now that you're saved, now that you're part of the people of God and you're saved, live like it. What does that look like? Well, it means to fix your hope on Jesus. It means to be holy as he is holy. It means to conduct yourself in fear. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for you. So now that you're saved, live like it. Live like it. Um, Salvation isn't merely a gift you enjoy. It's a responsibility that you and I live.